Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Tiffany is in Rome. Katie is in Seattle. And Tiffany, you have something to share with us today. Well, I'm reading The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway right now. I was having a hard time getting into it. And now I'm thoroughly into it. And and I'm liking it, but I'm not a huge Hemingway fan. Let me just put that out there. I much prefer Steinbeck and Fitzgerald a hundred times more. But, you know, I do appreciate Hemingway. I try to anyways. Okay. Um, but there's this famous, famous Hemingway quote. If you're an expat, you've heard it. You've heard it somewhere. You know, I was very familiar with this quote, but I, I didn't know where it came from. And I was not on the brink of giving up this book because, you know, I almost never give up books. But I was kind of, that's how I was feeling. I was kind of like... God, this is tedious. Mm -hmm. And I got to this scene in which the narrator, who is an American writer, well, he's like a newspaper guy who is living in Paris, is talking with a another writer, but a novelist who is visiting from the States who does not live there. And he says, well, first he starts out, he keeps saying, you're, you're, you know, you're an expatriate. He, he keeps bringing it up. He just keeps saying, you're an expatriate. Why don't you live in New York? Then you'd know these things. Mm-hmm. Um, this really reminded me of the last conversation we had, the cultural fluency episode, because, you know, you're saying if you lived in the States, you'd know that Americans drink frizzy water now. Fizzy water, not frizzy water. Eh, call it what you <laughs> um, will. Yes. It, you know, you'd know that uh, we don't say supplement when we're talking about extra charges in the taxi cab. So he says, uh, you claim you want to be a writer but you're only a newspaper man. You're ex- an expatriated newspaper man. And then he jumps ahead and says the line that uh, that I said, you're an expatriate. Why don't you live in New York? Then you'd know these things. What do you want me to do? Come over here and tell you every year? And finally, he says, this is the line that really uh, would keep me up at night. He says, you're an expatriate, one of the worst type. Haven't you heard that? Nobody that ever left their own country ever wrote anything worth printing, not even in the newspapers. Hmm. It's not the famous line. I'm getting to the famous line. But that was like... Also not true for him. Yeah, go ahead. Well, (laughs) yes, truly, truly um, not true in this case. But this is his first book, right? So I don't know that Hemingway had been an expatriate at this point. He'd been in the war, but that's not the same thing. Hmm. This line, you're an expatriate. He keeps saying it. I'm like, I've heard that. And I've heard that line somewhere before. Finally, he gets to to the little mini speech that is so famous. You're an expatriate. You've lost touch with the soil. You get precious. Fake European standards have ruined you. You drink yourself to death. You become obsessed by sex. You spend all your time talking, not working. You're an expatriate, see? You hang around cafes. (laughs) Sounds lovely. Have you ever ever heard that line? (laughs) I'm sure people use that in the way that, doesn't that sound lovely? Yeah. Well, I think that they do. They do. And that's the funny thing. In the book, it's so negative. It's this like, you're dissolute, you know, loser basically but but people um who sort of romanticize the expat life put this in quotes and i think i've used this quote before on our social media or on my own you know and i finally got to see it in context which i was i was happy about so when you knew it out of context did you think that it was a positive i mean it's very positive negative i mean clearly 
you know, you drink yourself to death. Not okay, a positive. Not a positive. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a giveaway. Becoming obsessed with sex. I mean, you know, it's you know, it's a little bit, a little more interesting. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, hanging around in cafes is good. Yeah, you know, but who wants to say? Who would want someone to say of them? You spend all your life. You spend all your time talking, not working. I mean, I mean, I think that that is what people go traveling to do. In the True. hopes of, in some mm -hmm. cases, maybe. I mean, I think, think sometimes you travel for work or travel to inspire future work, but sometimes you travel just or displace yourself just because you want to stop working so much and do more chatting mm -hmm. in cafes, more living, so to speak. I had not heard that before, but to be honest, which is kind of funny, even though a lot of people consider this an expat show, which I do not, but okay, I'll go with it. I don't spend a lot of time reading about or thinking about expats. Like I'm not searching out quotes about the expat experience in my day-to-day -day life. I'm looking for the inspiration for the show, but I, I naturally now think about the themes of this show. Yeah, but it did. I mean, you have to admit it did start. That was our like original, the original very first seat of this show was the looking at the expat life from a long-term perspective and a short-term perspective. Oh, for sure. Um, and I think it's a big, and... I still think it's a big part of it. And obviously, I interview a lot of people who are reporting on different aspects of the expat experience. But, um, but yeah, I just I don't know. I think it's I, I mean, it makes sense to me that you would be encountering more quotes about the expat experience. You than know, I would I'm be. trying to think about when I first heard this quote and it it might have been I was part of a very extremely low budget um, what I think began as a student film, but eventually turned into a, like a passion project for a guy that I knew living here in Rome, my first year in Rome, an English guy. Mm -hmm. And he made this short, it wasn't a short, it was not feature length, but it was somewhere in between. Just basically all of his friends in the cast, there was not a single paid actor in it. Uh, his best friend was a cameraman. He wrote it and directed it. The people that we knew in our neighborhoods, you know, let us use their cafes and stuff like that. And it was mm -hmm. called La Bella Figura. And there's a scene in it in which he has just arrived in Rome from London and he is taking an escalator up in the metro. And I think that this quote or perhaps part of it is sort of on voiceover. Mm -hmm. That may be the first place that I heard it. Mm -hmm. And then later I encountered it and knew that it was Hemingway, found it somewhere. Yeah. So that may be where. Uh, I mean, but, it, um, it does have that feeling of a quote that would sort of be that sort of ironic start to a movie of some yeah. kind of movie or the experience. You know, when you were reading it, it reminded me, have you ever seen the movie Train Spotting? Um, I have, but it's been so long. I, I couldn't tell you a thing about it except Ewan McGregor's in it, right? Yes, that's <laughs> correct. It's also about heroin, you might remember. But there is this line in there. Can I read it to you? It's a little bit, a little bit long. Sure. It's a, it's more of a paragraph. It's like a speech, but it has sort of the same ring to it, where it's like both attractive and, and also trying to make a point, you know, in the negative. So here is what it is: choose life, choose a job, choose a career, choose a family, choose a big television, choose washing machines, cars, compact disc players, and electrical tin openers. Choose good health, low cholesterol, and dental insurance. Choose fixed interest mortgage repayments. Choose a starter home. Choose your friends. Choose leisure wear and matching luggage. 
by the way, I'm cutting out their profanities in this for those of you who are purists, but okay. Choose DIY and wondering who you are on a Sunday morning. Choose sitting on that couch watching mind-numbing, spirit-crushing game shows, stuffing junk food into your mouth. Choose rotting away at the end of it all. Choose your future. Choose life. But why would I want to do a thing like that? I choose not to choose life. I choose something else. And the reasons? There are no reasons. Who needs reasons when you have heroin? Ugh. And you see how it's like, here's all these aspirational things. And then it starts to turn the aspirational things upside down. And and all along, mm-hmm. they're making fun of people who live a normal life. At the same point, here they are like saying the ultimate message, which is, how can I make any choices about any of these things when I have heroin? You see how it kind of reminds you of the same thing? It's like, it, Yeah, it is. Because it starts, it sounds like a good thing at first. Choose and then these it things. You want to do this. You want to have that into no choice at yeah. the end. Good movie. Mm. Dark. Dark. Yeah, it would have to be. Yeah, but so you were thinking like, in part of reading that, though, when you read that line about the expat experience, that what did it remind you of in your own life? I mean, you've lost touch with the soil. I think that's the big line. That's the most important line in it. You've lost touch with the soil. And and that goes back to the line before it when he says, you're an expatriate. Why don't you live in New York? Then you'd know these things, you know? And as a writer, do you have to live in your own country for most of the most of your life to be able to write about your compatriots with any kind of accuracy and insight and understanding? Mm. You know, luckily right now I'm writing historical fiction. <laughs> I kind of have <laughs> a, pass, in Italy. a little bit of a pass yeah. set in Italy. But, you know, if I wanted to write a book, a, a contemporary work of adult fiction set in the United States in 2023, how would I be able to do that in, in an authentic way? Because I haven't lived there in so long. So you think that if you set a novel in, say, New York City, 2023, that you would be walking into landmines of things that don't ring true to people in New York? Very likely. Yeah. I think anywhere in the United States. I mean... There is a certain amount of pop culture that you just, you know, you just come across, but I don't, I don't consume probably enough pop culture to be getting, you know, an accurate read from, from just that. And I just don't, I don't spend enough time there. I spend every so often, you know, I go to the States, but it's, you know, it's, I'm on vacation mode. I'm not on the streets interviewing people or sitting in cafes, listening to people's conversations. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, this, I, I see what you're saying, but I also think, I mean, you're writing a historical novel. It's like, yes, there's nobody yeah, well, around from like the 1500s that's going to be like, excuse me, I'm sorry, actually. We didn't have any kind of crackers that were like that. <laughs> but- <laughs> I'm sure there are historians who, who know that. Though. I know, I'm sure. Um, but like, but yes, but- no, I like I'm saying, it, when it comes to historical fiction, it, it's not a problem. It's not a problem for me. I'm lucky. But if I were a newspaper writer or someone who was trying to write the great American novel like Hemingway did, or, you know, could argue that Hemingway has done. Um, How do you write that great American novel if you're living in Paris or Cuba or wherever you happen to be living? I mean, I think people do it all the time. I I mean, maybe you would write the great American novel and set it in the 90s. Like you were living in America in the 90s, and you could write that from Rome. I mean, when I was doing research for the writer Anthony Doerr, one of the things he said to me is, it doesn't have to be how it would go in real life. It just has to seem plausible. 
to the reader. Right. I gave him all this data about the ins and outs of the Idaho justice system. It's not like he was now going to map that all out for the reader to make sure that they knew the ins and outs and how exactly it would go. You know, it's more like I need to know so that I can figure out what would be plausible for my people to do and not completely outlandish. And I think that you probably could do enough research into New York City or wherever you're setting it. Or hell, set it in Seattle. Then at least you have some context for having been there. You know, I think it's harder when you've never been in a spot and you have to set it there. True, true. Well, I honestly don't think that I will ever do that. I mean, I never say never. But I've famously, not famously, (laughs) I have repeatedly said that everything I've ever written was inspired by Rome mm-hmm. or, you know, Italy, it, maybe Italy more broadly, but, you know, pretty much Rome. All my inspiration comes from Rome for whatever I write. And so it's unlikely that I'm going to be like, oh, I'm going to set my next book in like South Dakota in 1952. It's just probably not going to happen. Well, here's the reverse question. Let's say hypothetically that you do end up saying, you know what, I'm, my time in Italy is done. I'm moving back to the United States. Do you feel like you could still plausibly write about Rome? Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, here's another question. Do you think you could plausibly write about Rome? Let's say you moved today, okay? And Mm -hmm. you want to write a book that's set in Rome in 2024. Do you think you could plausibly (laughs) write a book that's set in Rome in contemporary times? Yeah, of course. Okay. Why not? Why? I mean, why not? My first book was set in contemporary times in Rome. I mean, I was living here, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's one thing to be gone for a matter of months. I haven't lived in the States for 19 years this month. 19 Yeah, I know. It's exciting. But I mean, (laughs) it also takes a while to figure out like what's going on. Like I lived in San Francisco for more than two years. Does that mean I could write a plausible San Francisco novel? I guess. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know that. I mean, this is the thing. Only people in San Francisco know if I'm right or not. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'd have someone check it who lived there, you know, like I did for Liam Callanan for his last book. You know, he had me read through it and make sure like, you know, is the street actually like this? And it was, you know, pretty basic stuff mm-hmm. um, that, you know, you can fact, get a fact check person, authentic, a person who checks the authenticity of, of your book. But it's more than that. It's more, and it's not so place specific. I mean, place American, but not like city. Like, I just feel like, do I know what America, like what the American experience, like, what, what the path experience is anymore? You know, do I... I mean, you can imagine the challenge. I mean, yes. it's one thing. It's yeah. one thing to write a book that takes place in another country, but is about people from your country. Mm-hmm. Like, like Liam's book, When in Rome, it's about Americans living in Rome. It's another thing to, you know, it's it's extremely ambitious to say, okay, I'm going, you know, I'm going to write a book. Even if you've lived there for a couple of years, I'm going to write a book about Germans living in Germany today. How would I know? what you know how would i ever be able to capture that authentically mm-hmm. people do it people have done it but i think it's a huge undertaking sure i okay so let's see do i think that you understand what it means to be an american right now <laughs> 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 hmm i would you know me i'd be more in the middle that i would be give you some sort of a wishy-washy answer but i guess i would say no you don't <laughs> <laughs> because it is 
it is quite different to be an American today than it would have been when you last lived here in 19 years ago. But that said, I mean, we've already established well in this show that some of the cultural DNA is so baked into you. This is where it gets wishy-washy, is because your work ethic comes from being an American. It does not come from you spending almost 20 years in Italy. You know, no question yeah. about it. Uh, so I do think that there are cultural our ways of being are in you in many ways mm -hmm. but i mean you don't understand it from the stress level or the ins and outs of like day-to-day -day life anymore i don't think you get that and you've never really had to navigate like the simple things like it's not simple it's so complicated things like the american medical system you've left so well, long I lived, ago. I lived in america until i was 27 Okay, but you know. So some some stuff, yes. Like, but I mean, as stuff starts to break down, <laughs> you know, as you get older mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in your 20s, you, how often do you go to a doctor's office? I mean, like next to never when you have to, mm -hmm. when they tell you you must go or maybe you break a bone or something, you know, otherwise you don't even darken those doors, you know, you just are out in the world ignoring it. So there are things like that that you've never had to deal with. And if you stay there, you'll never have to deal with it. But... I mean, it's too harsh. That's what I mean. It's too harsh for me to say, no, you don't understand it. Because obviously you do understand it. But... Well, I mean, like you said, it's a, it's a gray area. It's not it's not all or nothing. Mm -mm. But there are certain aspects of, of daily life that I wouldn't get. Um, a lot of people who live in Italy, though, like even people who live, I'm talking expats here, even people who live here long term, a lot of times don't understand what it's like to be an Italian. Yeah. I um, even, people who be, even people who become citizens. Yeah. You know, there is, there is a superficial way to live as an expat. It's very, you know, especially if you have a certain amount of money, it's very easy to sort of skate on the superficiality of Italy Yep, and never, uh, and not understand. You just, just see the, the, the good stuff when there's a lot of good stuff, you know, mm -hmm. but just see the, you know, the sunshine and the, and the good food and the long vacation, summer vacations yep. and whatever. Yep. And never see the kind of, and even I do not go as deep, you know, as my husband. And I see through his eyes, you know, so many, so many of the really difficult and really challenging things about the school system. I'm learning now, but my kid's still only in, in third grade. So I haven't, I haven't lived through the, the, the bad part, but you know, there's a lot of stuff that I don't experience and that a lot of expats don't experience living over here. Right. Well, I mean, cause it's an adopted country, so you can really choose how far you want to go. But the problem is you, you get to the point where it's like, do I, is there anywhere that I understand and that I know truly? Well, here's what I, I don't know my home country anymore. <laughs> and I don't know the country I'm living cause it's an adopted country. Where is there a place in the world that I truly know? I think here's what I would guess because you have this very strong foundation of growing up in the United States and living here until you were 27 years old. I feel like your capacity to adapt back into it would be much faster than your ability to adapt to living in, in Italy would be or was or has been. Possibly. I think Possibly. definitely because it, it's I mean, 27 years is a long time, and it's also the origin story. You know, that's the stuff mm -hmm. that's getting baked in when you're just a little person. Mm -hmm. Things that are normal when you're a little person, 
whether or not they seem normal now or not, you know, are still in there somewhere as like what it was like. And so I do feel like if you came back, you might be able to figure out figure it out faster than a new person who was arriving. Certainly, whether or not everything had changed, you'd figure it out faster because you still are raised in like the central tenets of what it is to be an American. You, mm-hmm. you whatever the cultural glue that we all have that bind us together as a personality type it's not even a personality type but whatever that is the way that we culturally are as americans you know that is who you are from birth now it's Mm -hmm. interesting for aurelio because i mean i guess he'll think of himself as origin story italian but he's also yeah for sure he 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 feels american but it's definitely secondary it's funny i i when we were in austria we bunch of the kids who were staying in our hotel and their parents were were playing a game of I wasn't playing Claudia was playing with Aurelio they were playing soccer right there was a sort of outdoor soccer field at this at this hotel it was the dads against the kids and I took a little video of it and I put it on my Instagram and I put the little flags of all the countries that were represented and I put you know Scotland was there and Germany was there and Italy for for Claudio and then I put the American flag because I wanted to have as many flags on there as possible and I really looked at it and he goes who is American and mm-hmm. I was like you <laughs> you were American I was like oh right <laughs> yeah but I mean maybe yeah. that's like an abstract for him really I know he's been to America a few times but you know in the grand scheme of life given that he's not that old <laughs> you know yeah he's still yeah. a child I, mean, he, I think I think he tends to feel more American than the than the typical expat kid, American ex not expat. He's not an expat. He's a bicultural kid because I am, you know, like it's the Fourth of July, you know, let's celebrate American Independence or it's Thanksgiving, you know, or it's Halloween. Like the trying to get those American important cultural moments in and and you know he's got a little like a map of the United States on his wall and. I, you know, I'll buy him shirts with like American flags on them if I see them uh, or USA because, you know, I want him to feel that identity. And it's kind of a superficial way of feeling it. But, you know, it's what I can do, mm-hmm. you know, beyond traveling there when we can. So I do think that compared to a lot of the kids I know who are in the same situation, I feel like he is a little bit more, at least how he says it, you know, when he, when he talks about himself it comes out a little bit more. But still, that moment, he was like, who is the American? <laughs> well, I'm curious, actually, because maybe he doesn't, like, think about his, like, social reputation and stuff a lot le- yet. But I don't remember in third grade whether or not I cared about that. But I wonder, is there some sort of social cachet by him being able to say that he's American? I think there is. Yeah, I don't know that he's aware of it yet. I do know that, like, a lot of times... It's not so much the kids, but like the moms will say it and I'm, but he will hear it. They'll be like, oh, you're so lucky. He can speak English fluently. Oh my gosh, that's so great. What a great opportunity. He's bilingual. That's so, that's so wonderful. Or this, or they'll say things like, oh, can you help my son, in, you know, with his English? Mm-hmm. He was over at a friend's house the other night, his best friend's house. And his friend's mom was like, I'll give you a euro if you give me an English lesson <laughs> or five euros. I think she's like, I'll give you five euros if you give me an English lesson. Wow. So he does have a certain amount of perception of it. And then, of course, when he's in the States, you know, my mom, like if he meets one of my mom's friends, she'll be like, oh, my my grandson speaks Italian. Say something in Italian, you know? <laughs> which he, of course, refuses to do. You don't want to do that. That's embarrassing. So anyway, yeah. I think he maybe gets it. But, you know, a little bit, a little bit. 
I mean, I'm sure knowing how much he likes to please you, that if you give him like a positive reaction every time he's like, I'm an American, that he would say <laughs> it all the more, you know, because if he gets a nice hug and a snuggle every time he's like, I'm an American boy, then he's going to be like super American pride, you know? He, he has said it when he says it, it's usually because he's like, because I've gotten so into the Italian way of serving meals one thing at a time like mm -hmm. i give him his pasta and then when he's finished with that i give him fish or meat or whatever it is italians do usually eat a vegetable along with the meat but i'll i'll give it to him separately after that's much more italian i mean i don't think americans do that really unless it's like a restaurant and you get an appetizer yeah. right well, yeah, um, we always eat things at the same time, but that's very funny because we've talked on the show so many times about you complaining about how long he takes to eat, but that's, you know, because he won't keep moving forward eating. But man, if you're serving him three courses every day, geez, that's yeah, like, but I mean, it's a same amount commitment. of food, but it's, it's coming in courses. Like we're just piling it all together and, you know. Yeah. Well, sometimes he'll say, can I have some turkey? He loves turkey. <laughs> There's American right there. Mm -hmm. um he'll say can i have some turkey with my while i'm eating my pasta and i'll be like no you can't have turkey while you're eating pasta like it's just a, I, I truly there's nothing wrong with it i should just be like of course you know eat the more you eat the better you know yeah but of course my my instinct is to be like no you can't have turkey because i know he'll he'll just eat the turkey he won't eat the pasta and he'll go mom i'm an american boy see American boy isn't that interesting and then the that other he knows that's a Amer that's an american you know you know he knows. And the other thing um, he the other thing he said to me once was like, he's like, mom, can I have some milk while I'm having dinner? I'm like, no, you can't have milk with your dinner. And he's like, oh, my God, boy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, okay, have some milk. <laughs> Look at you. You see, there there you go. As far as um, whether you've gone native or not. That's oh, that's when I really feel like I've gone native. Yeah. And I'm like, no, but you can't have milk with dinner. That's, that's, that's the most disgusting thing I've ever heard of. What are you talking about mixing your meat? I grew up having milk with dinner every night. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's not only unacceptable, it's absolutely repulsive. And how dare you ask? <laughs> and he's like, it's good for I my know. bones. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we should leave it there. Super fun, though, uh, to think about. And maybe tomorrow you'll just let Aurelio have that milk with his with his food. Let's try it yeah. as an experiment. Like set well, it set it down with the pasta and just see mm. what he does. See if he reacts mm -hmm. like in the opposite, like with offense. The milk or the or another food? No, like set the milk down with the first course. Maybe put the pasta okay. with the turkey. And give him the okay. glass of milk and see. What I he need says. to get one of those plates they have in America that are like divided. You don't you know, have to do plates. <laughs> you don't have to do that. That's like a school lunchroom. You know, well, because kids can't stand when foods are touching. It's I like know. a universal kid thing. That is not based on country. That is like universal kids don't like their food to touch. Yes, that's fair. But you can like just put the pasta, you know, a wedge up against one side and the, you know, the turkey on the other and side. I there's nothing try. there's nothing crazy like peas that could roll across in that, <laughs> in, that, in that circumstance. So, yeah, maybe just like set up the meal totally differently and see it, what he does. We can do it as a social experiment. I could. I could try that. All right. All right. I'm game. All right. Well, thank you very much for supporting this show, those of you who do. Uh, remember, there's always bonus episodes over on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Bittersweet Life podcast for as little as $5 a month, extra time and uh, lots of conversations that are absolutely fascinating, but will never end up on this main show. 
and we'll leave it there. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Bye. If you love the show, take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love to read while you listen, and your rating might help someone else discover the show. Take just a couple of minutes to let the world know what you think of this show. It means the world to us. Thanks. Thanks.